What's up, everybody? This is The Big Kid Show. I'm Mark, and thanks for kicking it with us in the sandbox today. If you haven't already, please be sure to like, subscribe, give us a rating, drop us a review. All that helps the crazy computations that push us up the podcast ratings and help us reach more big kids like you. As always, we greatly appreciate you all and your support. Today, we will be playing one of our favorite formats, one of my favorite formats. That's top three. And with that said... No further ado, our category for today, gentlemen, top three guitarists of the 90s. Yes. Right, we will be talking all about your favorite axe shredders from 1990 to 1999, which the Big Kid Research Team continues to inform me is a decade, not a century. Thanks for that. Correct. Nailed it. As a guitar player myself, this is definitely a topic that is near and dear to me. Now, according to Wikipedia... Here's the definition of a guitar. The guitar is a fretted musical instrument that typically has six strings. It is usually held flat against the player's body and played by strumming or plucking the strings with the dominant hand while simultaneously pressing selected strings against frets with the fingers of the opposite hand. Something along those lines. Let's be real. A guitar is like a magical wand. A wand that you can use (laughs) to cast a spell over anyone nearby and transport them to a magical place. Or it could be a curse if it's your third day with it and you don't know how to control the volume on your amp. Either way, it's a magical device and we've got magicians to discuss. You want to know what's something else that's magical, boys? We have a special guest with us this evening. That's right. We cleaned up the treehouse and made room for the one and only special guest here with us this evening. Joining us once again here on the Big Kids Show, also known as the Extra Large Kids Show in Antarctica. He comes to us from his garage studio, hailing from the beautiful and soon to be gentrified parts unknown. He is one half of the Midwest favorite fake detective duo. He reached stardom at an obscenely early age. Last time he joined us, we called him the Ace of Bass. He is a guitarist, a recording engineer. He is known in the podcast music realm as simply the creator. He is an Instagram influencer and a two-time True Crime Garage Employee of the Month. (laughs) He is on his way to becoming a podcast living legend. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the captain. Thank you, thank you. I'm here to show my magic wand. (laughs) Careful, police might get called. (laughs) Please, please stop stroking my magic wand. (laughs) <laughs> but this but this is why it's such a great category though because it's it's four guys that were definitely influenced by these guys that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yes. To That's purchase cool. an instrument. We all did it. There's not one person in this group that didn't purchase an instrument and wanted to be, you know, we all wanted to be one of these guys. Absolutely. These are the yeah. idols. Yes. And, you know, according to the nickname that I've been coined from these guys, I 
can't stop trying to buy my way into the <laughs> <laughs> idols and buying more guitars. I'm, I'm done. I'm good for a while. Mm-hmm. But no, <laughs> Captain, we're definitely very happy to have you with us tonight. This is awesome to uh, to have you on board again for, for another episode with the big kids. And boys, I'm excited. This is going to be a good one tonight. We kind of talked a little bit pre-episode how this one could go a bunch of different directions, right? How do you... How do you say who the best guitar player is? The the great 80s guitar players didn't stop playing at midnight on December 31st, 1989. So it's interesting to see what everybody uh, comes with, you know, what angle they come with. But but we got a lot to talk about. So let's dive in, boys. So, Mr. B, I'm going to have you kick us off with oh. uh, with your number three selection. And then we'll go to Pat, Nick, and, and myself. Um, so let's start off with you, Mr. B. Kick us off with your number three guitar player of the 90s. Will do. And I have 372 honorable mentions. So (laughs) I would save a few minutes. So my number three, I'm going to go with a a lovely fellow that played in a little band called Alice in Chains. We're going to go with Mr. Jerry Cantrell Jr. I like it. I mean, solely based off, I just loved Alice in Chains, especially Dirt. Um, I just love the way he played the guitar. I mean, again, is he the most technical guitar player that we'll probably list? Doubtful, but just I love his grooves, his style. And on top of it, I mean, he was singing. You know, I mean, I know Lane Staley was the lead singer, if you want to call him, but this guy's doing backup vocals while kicking ass on guitar. Um, well, some of the I, tunes he did, he would be the lead singer on. That's true, yeah, especially the the, the later albums when – you know, Lane Staley was out of his head, but and then didn't uh, he have a solo record in the nineties? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah. on go, go sorry, ahead, sorry, Mr. B, I, I didn't mean to cut you off here, buddy. But on that on that tripod album, that that last album where Cantrell starts singing and doing some of the lead vocals, I wondered if there was a little bit of bad blood between the two of them in that in that album it's almost like the word choices that stanley's using at times like i wondered if he was poking at cantrell without him necessarily even knowing about it yeah the the, the drug use was pretty rampant at that point and they you know obviously we have lost two members of allison chains um but i mean this is what i thought was pretty impressive though that guitar world magazine uh, in 2012 listed jerry cantrell as the 37th greatest guitar player of all time that's, wow. that's 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 a, a rich company to keep there. Even just to make the top 100 means you're a badass. Yeah, and they exactly. got it listed at 37. So Jerry Cantrell, love him. He's awesome. For my number three, I am going, and this you're going to start making fun of my list real early. <laughs> Why did you do that, Captain? <laughs> my, my number three is Mr. Kirk Cobain. Oh, there you go. Cobain. Innovator. Well, because the early the early nineties were when you really break it down, Bleach, which was done in eighty nine, which but still spilled over into ninety. Mm-hmm. Nevermind ninety one and Utero ninety three, and then the unplugged record in ninety four. And then of course then he dies. But it's like that first part of the nineties, his riffs ruled the world. Oh, they ruled the mm-hmm. airwaves everywhere, yes. And I think he was definitely somebody that got people to buy a guitar and not just electric guitar, but with the unplugged record, I think a lot of kids went, Oh, 
I might want to play acoustic guitar as well. Yeah, he he was one of the ones that really locked me into wanting to play guitar there in the early '90s, Captain. Well, and I think you know we kind of mentioned it, but it's not just like who has technical chops, right? Because there's a lot of guys that have technical chops. Hell, there's a lot of guys on YouTube that have technical chops that'll never sell, sell an album in their life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But Cobain, he had the ability to just draw you in, which I think was like a superpower of his. You know what I mean? He didn't. He wasn't always playing the flashiest riffs or things like that, but he knew how to take what was there, and he also. I mean, if you think about it, he, the style that he played didn't exactly completely exist before Nirvana, right? right? I mean, they kind of took some genres and bended them a little bit. Not to say that you start from scratch, but he bended them a little bit to, to kind of create, you know, what became that grunge era of the 90s. And um, no, I, I think it's an excellent pick, Captain. I think, you know, he's one of those guys that you have to call him at least one of the most influential guitar players of all time. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's a quality pick. And and again, dude singing the whole time. I mean, there's plenty of right. great guitar players and they're like, please don't make me sing. This guy's mm-hmm. like, I got it. I'll be up front singing and playing guitar. Let's go. The other reason why I think he deserves to be on anybody's list is also the idea that he had a, a voice on the instrument. When when he when you hear a Nirvana riff, you knew that was Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Nailed it. That's a good point. Yep. Yeah, and when when he comes out, right? When when I'm not going to pretend like he's the the one that created that sound, but he's certainly responsible for bringing it to the mainstream and making that sound mainstream. And Captain nailed it. When when you heard a riff, you heard a Nirvana riff, you knew it was Nirvana. It had a unique sound, and that's why I said innovator uh, when when his name was mentioned, and look at the amount of great music that he pumped out in the nineties alone. And that's what we're talking about. You know, we're not talking about this is top three guitarist. It's not guitar player. Like Mark said, you can hop on YouTube and you can see guys mimicking what other people created. And those guys are good guitar players. The guitarist to me, it's the complete and total package. And there was not, much of a better package out there than Kurt Cobain. And I'm not trying to be sexual here. I know it sounded like that, but uh, mm. you know, but we're nice, talking like nice, his, yeah. his, his, <laughs> his, his, his look, he was the front man. The, the sound coming out of his guitar was amazing. By the way, he's writing all this stuff too. And on top of that, like what was so cool about Kurt and the way that he played guitar was like, you knew he was talented. You knew he was a strong guitarist but you tuned in and you saw him on stage or you saw him in the videos and here's a guy that looked like he could give a shit about what you thought of him or him ever being famous to to start with and so it was the total package i think i'm glad that he's included on on our list here today i was just about to say that same thing nick i mean he he you could tell like you listen to interviews with him and there was definitely a don't give a shit attitude in the sense of not that he just, he was going to do what he wanted to do. You know, he, he wasn't going to be influenced. Cause I, everybody knows there's a lot of guitar players that want to sound a certain way. Cause they think it's going to get them on the radio. Yeah. You could just tell, I, th- I think he was writing from the heart and it, it definitely showed. Love All it. Right, boys. Love it. Beautiful. All right. Big Nick, let's move on to you. Number three. What do you got for us, sir? 
So this one hit me hard. 1991, the four unlawful carnal knowledge album comes out and I'm like tuning in and I, you know, I dug me some Van Halen from 5150 and OU812 and forgive me because I'm young and I didn't catch on to Van Halen until the Van Hagar years. Right. But, um, <laughs> For uh, for unlawful carnal knowledge comes out in 1991. It's known as the fuck album. Uh, but the first time that I see a song off of this album or hear a song off of this album is on MTV, and it's Edward Van Halen holding his signature guitar with the drill up to it, and he's and he's trying to play the guitar with the drill, and I just thought. You know, here's a 11 year old Nick sitting on the couch, and I'm like, man, this is one of the coolest things I've seen. And I well, loved with that sexual. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I loved that album. And for me, even though I was big into 5150, OU812, that 1991 album, and then it's followed up with Balance and then Van Halen 3 in 1998, that album to me, the 91 album, just sealed the deal for me that the Edward Van Halen was going to be one of my favorite guitar players of my lifetime, uh, not just the nineties. So uh, big shout out to, to uh, Eddie uh, RIP. It still, still hurts a little bit uh, that, uh, that he's gone. Uh, but uh, you know, he, he's certainly, you could, you could talk about him in the, in the conversation of one of the true greats of all time. And, and I loved him, loved him to death in the 90s. Well, and also a guy from the 80s who was an icon in the 80s and almost like revamps his career in the 90s to like a whole different, and I want to say better. That's why I hate the argument uh, of, you know, whether you're a, a Sammy fan or a Hagar fan. And it's like, they're, they're two different levels uh, and they're like two different peaks, almost two different bands too. And it's kind of weird, like the breakup, the split with Roth, because when that goes down, the, the very simplest way to explain the break between Roth and Van Halen was that, look, if you join Van Halen, you are going to do and say and act as the Van Halen boys, as the brothers tell you to. I mean, that's that they are the sheriffs of that band and always have been, always will be. And when you had Roth, who who was a great front man, and then he wants to start singing about dance songs. You know, he wants to start start doing dance st song stuff. And that was going to be the split because Eddie and Eddie and Alex wanted to be rock and roll and keep it rock and roll. But then they bring in Sammy, who's already had success in his own right. And with other bands, um, he was with Montrose and he was by himself and had big hits with both. And they bring him in. And now you got we got the love songs, right? That's when when Van Halen went deep into a lot of the love songs and some more of the ballad stuff. And, and part of that was because Roth was more of a showman and he he just can't, he can't sing like Sammy. Um, and so it was weird, like they were destined to go through a transition. Uh, whether it was keep Roth and get into some more dance the night away type songs or boom, you land somebody like the red rocker with Sammy. And now you're, you're doing a lot of love songs.
Well, it's something that people don't question often is if they stay with if they stay with David Lee Roth, do they fall to the wayside like so many eighties bands? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the biggest eighties eighties bands, like once it hit mid nineties, they couldn't get a gig. I never got to see Eddie with Sammy. I saw Sammy's uh band by himself. Um and that was a fantastic show. It was it's like the the poor man's ticket to watching Van Halen, right? Like cause he does ninety percent of his set is Van Halen. Uh and, but I got to see Van Halen with David Lee Roth. And I'm really glad that I did because it, it was a hell of a show. And, you know, back in the day in the seventies and the eighties before, before the split there. And even after Sammy joined, they, they, they referred to it like the circus. When Van Halen came into a city, it was like the circus came to town and took over that city for a night or two. Oh, Marcus, it's your turn. Mark, you're on mute on Zen. Sorry, I was on mute. We'll edit that out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wasn't a huge Van Halen fan, but at the same time, you can't deny what those guys brought to the table. I mean, you know, and I think anytime you change a lead singer, I mean, as much as anybody would disagree that doesn't sing in a band, it's much easier to replace a guitar player than it is as a lead singer because the singer just has its own iconic sound to it don't you say it mr b i'll say let's let's stop giving too much love to the singers here we're talking about guitar players you guys have been talking about singers for like 10 minutes really easy to come on man we're talking about guitar players here you guys were giving me a whole history on on singers let's roll no no but i think uh that's a quality choice there big nick so i have a question for sweetwater mark and for the captain here oh sweetwater mark so i didn't think that was a real thing yeah, Sweetwater Mark and the Captain thing. have have a habit of purchasing guitars uh, every opportunity that they get. So, how high on the list of priority, like, would be the, would be the Frankenstein guitar for me to own? Yeah, well, no, it's not on my list. It's it's an iconic guitar, though. We can all agree on that, right? Oh, yeah. of course. Yeah, I, I, I bet it's not on Mark's list either. I would agree. Yeah, it's not on mine either. I think. I, I, I mean, it's I one a, thing for, for other guys to play it, but I like as far as like your own tastes. I think you pretty quickly kind of fall into a groove with the types of guitars that you like. Like I'm a big PRS guy, and I like Ernie Ball. So yeah, I don't know if I'd rock the Frankenstein, but if we combine yeah. combined you and the Captain's guitar collections, we could open up a music store. <laughs> <laughs> we can open up a second Sweetwater. Right. Exactly. <laughs> we have plus. we have 3200 guitars for sale right now but you can't buy any of them <laughs> well I, I think the problem with eddie uh, with his guitars is because it's such a signature look for him mm-hmm. that it's like if you if you're into slash you can get away with playing a les paul or if you're into clapton you can play a strat and nobody's going to call you out on it but i think especially like when you're when you're trying to be in a band and write your own stuff, like you don't want people to say you're copying somebody. Yeah. Good luck. Try- sense. Yeah. Good luck trying to f- emulate him. I mean, if you have that guitar, you better shred like him. 
Right, you better start tapping. Yeah. yeah, don't get up there and play three power chords. You get booed <laughs> off stage real quick. It'll work out well for you. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, boys, we're off to a good start. So let me wrap up our uh, our third round here. So I am going to go with a gentleman that was born back in 1964, and that would be one Thomas Baptist Morello. Yes, I'm Morello. So. To me, this was definitely the quintessential pick of yes, this guy can shred. I mean, there's if you listen to some of the some of the songs on the first album, he does some pretty impressive solo work. But the thing I always liked the most about Tom Morello was his creativeness with the guitar. I mean, the first time I remember seeing them live, there, there was some literally I'll just call them sounds on the album. I'm like, how in the hell did he even do that? And he's flipping switches. He's unplugging the quarter-inch jack from the guitar and tapping it onto the strings. I mean, he's doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I love the guy's creativity. And, you know, from the the genre that they were and the style that they were, he, he was awesomely simplistic when he needed to be. Just super, like, power grooves. Very simple. Nothing crazy. And then when he needed to turn it up a notch, he could do that. And then when he needed just like a random sound because they didn't have a DJ and they did a lot of hip hop type stuff, he would pull that out of his bag. So just really all around, I feel like he uh, kind of kind of touched all the bases for me. Well, and, and if you remember, Mark, even that first album, I remember on the CD, there was a place where they printed like no samples were used in this album because some of his guitars sounded like samples. So they were like, no, I swear, this is all coming from instruments. We didn't have any kind of play-in or plug-ins. It was this dude making some weird-ass sounds with his guitar. Well, and if you got like Guitar World and they would show you the tabs, if you got a Tom Morello tab, there would be like, there'd be like notes at the beginning that would be like, you're going to need a guitar a wah pedal and an Allen wrench. And you're yep. like, what? <laughs> why I, remember, I remember seeing some of those, Captain. Uh, my The only reason why, and I I love Tom Morello. Um, I also just think he's like, I think the guitar heroes, and I would put, you know, Eddie Van Halen's guitar hero. Um, I think you can even say Kurt Cobain, even though he's not like, technically challenging guitar player he's still a guitar hero but as tom morello ages and you can still see his love and passion for the guitar when he's doing interviews the only reason why i didn't put him on my list was and it's probably not his fault but rage against machine their biggest problem i think as a band was their output it would yep. take them many years in between. Yeah. <laughs> many, yeah. many, many And years. so I think they, every album was Chinese democracy. For- well, I think they only technically put out two <laughs> records in 90. Well, I mean, they put out some live stuff and some um, kind of like bootleg stuff, but I think it was just mm-hmm. evil empire. And then battle of Los Angeles because yep. wasn't their first one. The, the first one, I think it came out in 90, the first one, Pat. Oh, okay. So yeah. so they did have three. Okay. That makes sense. I was thinking it was 89, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you're, you're not lying. I mean, it, and I think that's that's the one thing that was tough, just side tangent about Rage, was when you have a band like that that waits five years, four or five years between records, you're like, come on, guys. But 
also the musician and all of us probably also understands where you know it depends on how much of a perfectionist the people that you're dealing with is but no it's a valid yeah point. but here's I mean, what cracks me up though is so <laughs> it takes them six years to put out a record and they put out evil empire and that was all recorded in their practice space mm-hmm. so it's like if you're so i don't think the perf- there was there wasn't perfectionism because like once it was time to throw That's down, they were just like, just put us all in the same room, and and we'll just jam the stuff out. They were out um, attending protests, and uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm gonna go out on the limb here though too and say that I don't think that Tom Morello was the holdup. Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> putting out yeah. albums, and and I was incorrect actually, fellas. The that first album, the, the self titled album, was actually came out in '92. Really? Whoa! Wow! '96. Yeah. That, that was, was an Evil EP. Empire. Yeah, and then Battle of Los Angeles was ninety nine. Okay, so they did they the did time. technically have three, but yeah, it was a four it's hour in gap. The third one there, yeah, it's still for a ten year period. That I mean, for a yeah. band, that's not a lot. Well, and I think because they had so much success off their self titled, everyone was like, "All right, you guys need to crank out your second one." And it took them four years, so that's what yeah. kind of they lost. And they probably traction for who knows how long. I mean, a lot of those bands put out those big records; they got a tour on it for as long as the record company wants to push them out there. But no, it's uh. It's definitely, you know, to me, Tom was one of those guys that was very inspirational from a very like sideways perspective when it came to guitar. Cause you wanted to be able to do the little shred part. But like you said, Captain, you, you look at the tab book and it's like, here you want to do a wicked wicked. Yeah. It's like, what? what? How am I doing that? <laughs> I need a YouTube video showing me how to use my uh, guitar strings like a DJ stand. But th- so. they are really like, the freaks and geeks what freaks and geeks is to like tv rage against machine is to music because if you throw away renegades of funk because that album's covers but they have three records Mm -hmm. and they're one's an ep you know that first one's like right seven seven tracks and and on there but it's still it's not much i mean it's yeah i think that's always been the knock against those guys but like I said, I have a suspicion that Tom Morello is not the, uh, the driving force there that's that's holding them back. But he's anyway. not the speed bump, and exactly. and maybe the uh, uh, going to Harvard kind of proves that he's not a <laughs> can don't. He's more of a can do. Exactly. It's it's always interesting with band dynamics. But but anyway, boys. So that wraps us up for our round three. Let's kick it on to round two. Mister B, what you got for us with your second greatest guitar player of the nineties? So I'm going to go with the man, the legend, simply known as Dimebag Daryl. Oh, yeah. Good choice. Yes. Unfortunately, we lost Dimebag too early at a Columbus club that we all had frequented many times back in uh, 2004. Um, But just loved his style. Um, I think it's one of those things where I could play like a Pantera riff and you'd be like, yep, that's Pantera. I mean, you could just kind of, it sticks out with the way he would play. Um, It was kind of funny, though. The Big Kid Research team was all over this, that Pantera was really initially a glam band. I don't know if you guys knew that. Yeah, the early pictures are great. Yeah, like (laughs) spandex and makeup and big hair. Oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, it's like when you see them, you know, in the 90s versus, I think they started like in like 83. But um, Well, they wanted to be the next the second coming of Van Halen. Well, and, and also D- Dimebag was a massive Kiss fan. Like yeah. he actually, he was buried in a, a Kiss casket. 
Um, and actually, to kind of go back to, we were talking about Eddie Van Halen's uh, signature guitar. So that original signature guitar, uh, he was buried with it. Eddie Van Halen gave it to him when he was, uh, of course, buried. It was the original, the uh, Bumblebee. So, I mean, that shows you the respect of guitar player to guitar player that he did that. Um, but another signature series guitar that if you're trying to make a name for yourself, you didn't want to purchase the dime bag guitar because then everybody would know who your influence was. Oh yeah, the the, the <laughs> dean with the 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 fork top. I mean, it's yeah, like if, if you buy that, you better do some squeals and start <laughs> yeah. shredding. Don't get up there and play. Uh, you know, you can't play Nirvana on that water. guitar. <laughs> well, no, and he was originally with Washburn, and then he switched to Dean. That's uh, right. I, I I like when any guitar player says, "I look, I switched to this company." Because they were going to make more models that were affordable for kids. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, that's that's always nice. One thing though, I was really I did not know this, this is a super deep fact that in '87, uh, Dimebag Dare was invited to join Megadeth. Ooh, like really? Dave, well, Dave, to Dave, be Dave, fair, Megadeth invited everybody to join their <laughs> band. They've had fair, fair they've enough, had 37 but, guitar players. Hey, but still. Just to be asked is impressive, and he actually was going to do it, but he said, "I'm only going to do it if my brother can play drums." When they already had a drummer, so he, of course, turned it down. But look, but- I, I think going from Pantera at any point to Megadeth would be a downgrade, in my opinion. But well, this would this would have been before Pantera. This was '87 right, right. when he was asked to join. But um, yeah, Dimebag Daryl, just love. I mean, hell, the albums that they cranked out in the '90s were Cowboys from Hell. Vulgar display of power, far beyond driven, great southern trend kill. Those are all quality gym albums that Mr. B will rock. Now, okay, so a question for uh, the group: How many of us owned one of the little tiny battery-powered Marshall amps that would go on like your belt buckle? <laughs> I I did own one briefly. Yeah. Big um, Nick had one because I remember playing with it at his uh, house. The, the captain <laughs> certainly had one because he was. Or maybe it was the captains that I the was The captain was know. known for having it stra- actually strapped to his belt, so playing the bass or guitar in the hallway of the uh, school. Uh, so well, that's we know the captain had one. Because if you ever watched the, I think it was uh, the, the, what was the vulgar display of power, or whatever the documentary was called, he was walking around the streets of New York with his guitar. With it one was, of those that, little little amps hooked to his uh, belt buckle, that was awesome. I I had the VHS VHS tape of that documentary. It was pretty. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, I, I just loved it. He would just walk around the streets, just jamming out. We know uh, Twelve Foot Ninja rocked that Marshall amp in uh, one of their videos. Yes, well. they did. <laughs> well, and, and I'll tell you what, Dimebag was God bless him. And, and and you know what? Look, I I like Kiss too, but. I mean, come on. Gene Simmons benefits financially from Dimebag's death with the kiss casket. I mean, come on. Uh, but anyway, the the thing was, when I heard that riff from Cemetery Gates the first time, mm-hmm. you're like you're like 30 seconds into it. and You're like, yeah, this dude, this band, I'm in. I'm all the way in. I'm going to listen to whatever these guys pump out because it's awesome and it's legit. Now, Dimebag and his brother, Vinnie Paul, 
what, or cousin, right? That's his cousin, Vinny Paul. No, that's his brother. His brother. Okay, so Vinny Paul, Dimebag, those two would have been great additions to Megadeth. You would think that they would have rose to stardom uh, and and really catapulted Megadeth into some into the atmosphere, into the greater heights of stardom, but it wouldn't have worked. And I'll tell you why, because part of signing up for that band was you have to be willing to do whatever the hell Dave Mustaine tells you to do. And that's why they went through so many guitar players and drummers because Dave's like, you know, he's the singer, but he was arguably the lead guitar player most of the time too. And it, it was, it was his band. Everyone else was just people that he allowed to play with them. And when I get together with the boys and, and, and crank up some some backyard rock and roll, some backyard heavy metal, uh, and, and have some beers, I love to put on some old Megadeth because you might get seven guitar solos in a Megadeth song. You, it just <laughs> might happen. <laughs> Absolutely. Quality choice, quality choice. I definitely like it. And all right, Captain, hit us with your number two. Okay, what do you got I'm, for us? Number two, I have to go with a duo. And, and hopefully you allow this. Oh, you're gonna, you're gonna, you are a guest. He's a guest. You're going to pull a Mark and double up? No, no, he's a guest. Mark's not allowed, but the captain's allowed. Mark's not allowed. See, I, I get you chastised. Heard, <laughs> you heard the captain's accolades. I read them off going that's into true, the intro. We'll, we'll allow it. Well, we will allow it. Proceed, Captain. Uh, James Hatfield and, and Kirk Hammett. I love it. I love those, it. Yeah. I mean, those guys. And if you look at their output... Like, because I, I thought for a while, like, there's a big gap between the Black Album and Load, but there's, but there's really not because when I was a kid, when Live Shit Binge and Purge came out, that was a big deal. So you have the Black Album, then you have Live Shit Binge and Purge, and then you have uh, the Garage Inc. record, the covers record. And then you have load and then you have reload. And as much as people want to hate on the load and reload albums, everybody I knew could play one or two riffs off of those records. But the black album, um, I mean, I, the amount of tunes and riffs that I had to teach from that album. Um, and I think it was like, when we talk about like Kirk Ham, uh, not Kirk Hammond, when we talk about Kirk Cobain, like when the Beatles came out, thousands of people ran and bought guitars. And in that early 90s, even though Metallica was totally different than Nirvana, you have these like two juggernauts coming out. And the amount of guitars that were probably bought in the 90s is probably ridiculous. But yeah, James Hatfield, Kirk Hammond. Well, That's and what's cool awesome too, and, and this is uh, this plays into the level of stardom that Metallica rose to, and a, and a lot of it was on the backs of those two great guitarists. And the thing is, you know, in '88, when Injustice for All comes out, Metallica's opening up for Ozzy Osbourne. In '91, in the early stages of the release of the Black Album, they are opening up for Guns N' Roses. Which, you know, I don't want to get into an Aussie Guns N' Roses argument here, but '91 Guns N' Roses were far bigger worldwide than Ozzy was in '88. Now, you take that and you stretch it out about six months later, 
they ain't opening up for anybody ever again. Never. Never again. And that Black Album is wonderful. The Load and Reload is is wonderful. And then, you know, you, you go four and a half, five years between the Black Album and the Load Album. Yeah, but that's because they were touring for like two and a half years. And that's what people did in the 90s. When you were huge, when you... When you took it from from being good and being popular and, and selling albums to being epic, you toured your butts off until eight, until there wasn't a city that wanted to see you anymore. And and that's what they did. They toured for like two and a half years off of that Black album. So it took some time. You got to come down a little bit before you can start working on that next album. I love the duo pick. I think it's fantastic. Well played, Captain. Absolutely. Yeah, I can't argue. I mean, as the boys here know, and probably our listeners out there again, like I wasn't a huge Metallica fan, but I absolutely was influenced by Metallica. And I remember sitting on the floor in my living room after eating breakfast, getting ready for school and Enter Sandman came on MTV and I was just like, whoa. <laughs> right. I mean, but that was another band that like so iconic. You might not love, but you might know five or six of their riffs exactly you know i mean like yeah. I, and the thing too was like no, no, no. even like 10 year olds that would come in i'd be like do you listen to metallica and they'd be like no never heard of them and then you'd play like the inner sandman main riff and they'd be like i've heard that yep. you know or you'd play like uh the beginning of one or something and they go i i've heard that yep. um exactly i mean and also when you're so big uh what was that guitar hero they do a whole Metallica guitar hero. I mean, that just shows you how huge those guys were. Well, and if, and if you remember, uh, Pat and uh, Big Nick, our legendary band we formed called Assbag, we yes. played. We, we, <laughs> how we, we, how we, could one forget? We attempted to play Enter Sandman, and it was mediocre at best. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think we skipped all the solos. Skipped yeah, the solos. Well, well, no one wanted to hear the solos. That We did it for the fans. We skipped those, yeah. <laughs> It was a sold-out crowd in uh, uh, the Tristan Riders' backyard. Yeah. <laughs> Can't believe a guitar player from Assbag didn't make this list. Anyway, <laughs> Big Nick. How do you know we're not done yet? Yeah, we're not yeah, done yet. Got, number we, one. We've not got to number one. Of, yeah, I'm on the socials. Don't be jumping the gun there, there buddy. <laughs> well, and I, I should say this. I'm honored to be here with you gentlemen, with the captain, with Mr. B, and with, with Mark here, uh, because you guys are legit musicians and uh, guitar players and Guitarist, uh, me, I own a guitar. I've owned a guitar for like 30 years of my lifetime, and I could play the riff from Enter Sandman and Lay Your Hands on Me by Bon Jovi. Those are the two that I can do uh, <laughs> if, if you if you stuck a guitar in my hands right now. Uh, but in ballpark. neither of those will make my uh, number two. I'm going to go with a guy by the name of Saul Hudson, uh, the man under the black hat better known as slash who comes from one of my favorite bands of all time guns and roses and i was lucky enough to see slash doing it live thrown down on stage in in 2022 in the band guns and roses they did about a two hour and 45 minute set which is impressive at their uh old age every one of them uh, the proud carrier of an aarp card but uh <laughs> They very, they 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 did a very smart setup where they allowed Slash to be, and rightfully so, the star of the show. They up front, up up yeah, high. Yeah, between 
between every every third song was an extended just slash you're going to just sit back and enjoy the moment and it's going to be fantastic um in the 90s of course we had the use your illusion albums uh and the thing i like to tell people is if you didn't like use your illusion one don't worry about it they made a second one um the illusion the use your illusion albums were were incredible but the the band was also breaking up at the time it was similar situation to metallica where they toured for about three years off of the backs of those two albums and the touring and and just the hardcore lifestyle of some of the band members is what really broke it up not to mention axel rose being one of the most difficult people on the planet earth but he went on to do all kinds of other work in the 90s that did not include Guns N' Roses. And some of this was with his time with Guns N' Roses and without them. You know, he did a lot of work for Michael Jackson on a bunch of his different tracks. He did a song with uh, Bob Dylan. He wrote songs with Lenny, Lenny Kravitz. He wrote songs with uh, Carol King, Alice Cooper, Sammy Hagar. Spinal uh, Tap. Yep. yep he... Spinal Tap. I mean, he he contributed music to Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown soundtrack. He also appeared on Insane Clown Posse's album, the Great Malenko album. So, I mean, this guy was just—he just did. Every, he just—he <laughs> whored himself out to everybody in the '90s, and and everybody loved it. It was great. He's he's one of my favorite guitar players of all time, and I don't want to get into like who's the best, who's you know. Uh, I, I don't know that Slash is the best. Uh, I'm not going to make that argument. Obviously, he's my number two for the 90s. But his stage presence, his persona, that char- the character that he created. And he's like the silent guy in the band, which is really cool, too. Like, he's iconic. Yeah. Stick yeah. a cigarette in his mouth and a beer bottle in his hand and just let the guy play guitar. He ain't going to give you no problems, man. Big oh, Nick, he, do, do you own that him. hat? Do you own that hat? <laughs> <laughs> I... I, I I attempted to dress as Slash for Halloween one year. So and I had the like, hat. And you ended up looking like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> well, everybody thought I, he looked like Brian May. I had, I, I had the hat. I had the black wig. And, and, of course, I had the sunglasses. But I put on the sunglasses and the wig. And with this schnoz on me, I ended up looking like Howard Stern. And I thought, <laughs> I'll just leave the hat at home and go go as Howard. Not to the get sexual. Is, though, honestly, like, Not to yeah. get sexual, but he looked like Howard. You could honestly, you could put a shadow of Slash up, and people will be like, "Up, oh, that's Slash." Right? Yeah. I mean, like, how many guitar players can you say that about? Where you put a shadow of them, and people could recognize who you're talking about. I would love to know how many hats he owns that look like that. Like, he's got to have like a closet of like fifty of those hats. If you ever get a chance, Gibson does a thing called the Collection series on YouTube, and they have. Um, Slash talking about his collection of guitars, and obviously it's not every single guitar he owns, but just like the, but it's just like he keeps pulling out hundreds of them. I'm sure, and and, and each one is probably worth because he owned it, um, you know, fifty grand to a hundred grand or something crazy. So it's like by the time you're done watching the collection, you're like, this guy has millions of dollars in just less Pauls. <laughs> well, and don't forget, he did the Slash's Snake Pit, too, in the 90s after his departure from Guns N' Roses and had success with that as well. We talked about this here on the Big Kids show 
when we were doing some of our no phones, bad at life, bad at love. And remember, he had to pay his ex-wife $100,000 a month in, in alimony payments. Uh, and the stipulations were for the rest of her life or until she remarries. So guess who's not going to get remarried? Uh, uh, his ex-wife. One, this man made so much money, he has to pay his ex-wife $100,000 a month. That's not a bad um, month, monthly stipend there. No, so so he's he, he's had some success. We'll say that it, it's super cool too that his mother dated uh, the great, the late great David Bowie for a period of time, and there's some fun Bowie. stories, old, old Guns and Roses stories about uh, some of that as well. But uh, love the Slash. He's iconic, and 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 Captain's right. We were fortunate enough. We were down in Nashville doing something for True Crime Garage, and the captain said, hey, we're here. We have to go to the Gibson Garage. And I'm so glad that I'm so glad that sentence came out of his mouth because immediately I'm like, yes, thank you for saying that. Let's go. And we went there and they had they had so many beautiful guitars on display. And it's all starting out about five grand. Yeah, it, you don't even have to be into guitars that much to go in there and really just be amazed at what's going on. And now, like the captain said, very expensive guitars. They had a custom slash guitar right by the door that I think they were selling for like about ten grand. Uh, I don't think it was one of a kind, but I don't think they made too many of them. Now, what they did have too to accompany all those guitars were many armed guards uh, <laughs> with live rounds in the chamber, my friends. Uh, so don't be running. At, staring at the Colonel hard. Staring at the Colonel hard. Uh, don't, don't, don't go running out of there. You're going to catch one in the back. That would not be a good day. Well, Slash is a quality choice, Big Nick. I definitely think uh, it. I, he was very hard not to put on my list. He did not make my list. Spoiler alert for my next yeah. two, but um, that was tough. It, it, he, was a, he was a hard pass. Uh, hard to pass on, I should say, not a hard pass. So, anyway, boys, that'll uh, I'll wrap us up here in round two. Uh, me and Mr. B's brains continue to be attached somewhat. Uh, they're just a little <laughs> off kilter. We're just slightly off. A few wires got wired a little differently. I had Jerry Cantrell as my mm-hmm. number two guitar player. Um, Cantrell, well again, I mean, a lot of it was already said, but he's just one of those guys that, like, it's the same thing where, like, riffs, styles, his own voice through his guitar and definitely hugely influential on me growing up, um, you know, in kind of that, that grunge era of the nineties as a teenager. I mean, I think it just was a, was a perfect fit, but, um, but yeah, Jerry Cantrell and big Nick's dancing. He's dancing. Oh yeah. I love Jerry Cantrell. (laughs) Love (laughs) Allison chain. Love that pick. Yeah. And you, you said it all, buddy, Jerry Cantrell, man, just, he's the man. Absolutely. All right, Mr. B, let's get us into our uh, number ones here, boys. It's time for the the big boy pants to come out. Yep. And Mark, our brains are melting because my number one is a Mr. Tom Morello. (laughs) Oh, and and, and the only reason why. So, I mean, when you start getting into, I think, even the 90s and 2000s, I mean, so many great guitar players have done so much stuff that at some point you're essentially copycatting i mean just there's so many amazing solos and styles and stuff that i mean to create your own unique niche as a guitar player and i think tom morello has done that i mean just those 
the weirdness and the kind of like eccentric sounds and tones and styles that he does, he just sticks out to me. So is he the most technical guitar player that you've ever seen? I don't think so, but it's just very unique. And so when I when we were doing this list, I was like, God, how does Tom Morello not be my number one? Just because, especially in the 90s. I mean, the, he, you know, that first album came out and I was a kid. I was like, oh my God, what is this? I was like, that, <laughs> that guy's not playing guitar. He's making this stuff up. And it just... <laughs> I mean that first the the self titled album. God, I I played that thing till the CD broke. It was just amazing. Yeah, yeah. And one other thing I, that I didn't point out earlier, the amount of styles that he's able to do. I mean, if you listen to the song that I believe was on the first Crow soundtrack, I want to say it had like the doom 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 doom. Now it's a bass line, but there's a, a very like uh, kind of quaint guitar line that he's playing. And then it just kicks into like funk with rock. And then he's got the uh, the more heavier rock stuff with rage. I mean, he was able to just do a lot of different styles, which to me is always a true talent when you're able to, to really kind of push the envelope. Yeah, and way. he's since been in a bunch of different projects and even does like a folk. He's in a folk band. I think it's the Night, Night Watchmen or something, yep. but... The one thing I thought was really impressive because this guy, I imagine, is very uh, particular is he had two guest appearances with Bruce Springsteen back in tour with him. Yeah, 2008 to something. And one of the songs he played on, which uh, we got two members of Ground War here, uh, the ghost of the ghost of Tom Joad is what they played. And so I thought that was really cool. Plus, you guys used to rock that song badass. And, you know, I just. You know, for Bruce Springs to say, "Hey, Tom Morello, why don't you bring your guitar? Come up here and let's let's do a little ditty." Well, Have no, and, he, and see, I I heard that he played, you know, like a couple like award shows, and I was like, "Oh, that makes sense." But at some point, he like toured with Bruce for like it was like I don't know two years, and I was like, "Wait, he Tom Morello toured with Bruce Springsteen for that long? That's insane!" So, yeah, my just, only argument with again with tom morello is the output because if you look at like nick's second pick uh slash slash did more uh between 91 and 93 than tom morello did in the whole decade of uh the 90s the whole rage catalog uh, agreed and yeah that's what we could get into is output part of the things and you know, I don't know. I didn't factor that as much. I figured what he was putting out was quality and it was so unique. But I agree with you, Captain. Like, yeah, he didn't put out tons of stuff in the 90s. But what he did put out, I thought, just stuck out like a sore thumb. I was like, whoa, what is this guy doing? This is not what other guitar players are doing in the 90s. And it's it was just so unique. So love, love me some Tom Morello. Plus, the dude went to Harvard. So he's pretty smart. <laughs> he definitely knew what he was doing. Um, well, on that note. Captain, let's kick it to you. What's your number one, sir? What do you got? Well, does us? anybody know if Tom actually graduated from Harvard? That's a good question. We no, all know he did, that he went he, there. He did graduate, and I had it here. Is he graduated with a uh, um, probably graduated with ba- honors, Bachelor of Arts degree is in social studies. So, wow, that <laughs> he, doesn't count. Yeah, he, he, he initially he initially started in political science. But yeah, I, I graduated like you to go from to the, go Harvard. to the halls of Harvard and tell them that that doesn't count. Yeah, I would. <laughs> hey, just getting into Harvard is you got to pull some strings. So the fact that he got in is impressive alone, let alone graduating. And pull then, some strings? No pun intended. Yeah. Wow, wow. Well, yeah, I would go. Well, I went to Harvard and I graduated in, in lunch. Um, I went to Harvard and took a shit on their lawn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 
I can't believe that the colonel is going to have Slash at number two when he's clearly number one. <laughs> yes. I love it. I love it. <laughs> because, because here's the thing, and, and not that one list is better than the others because we all love – I mean, I love Tom Morello. But – and, like, Tom Morello had a bigger influence on me than Slash did. But Slash was in this – band for like basically five years or a little bit longer but like it's i think it's roughly six years of them putting out records and then once he leaves guns and roses he's iconic forever and so even if you look at like van halen like van halen's iconic but he was a part of van halen for a long period and then like nick was saying lenny kravitz spinal tap aerosmith Bob Dylan, Michael Jackson, Sheryl Crow, Iggy Pop, Brian May, Carol King, Alice Cooper, Sammy Hagar, and he's a juggalo. He's a he juggalo. Is a juggling juggalo. <laughs> that would keep him out of my number one. Um, <laughs> well, look, he might have he might have charged them a million dollars to be on the song. Um, the only thing that that. Uh, Doing some research on Slash, which was a little bit disappointing, was he is connected and talked a lot about with Michael Jackson. And he played on one and a half songs. I can't find, I was trying to find like the actual like credits. And he played like the intro of Black and White and he played like some other jackson song that wasn't a hit uh, in all dangerous but in all fairness to slash that's half of a song more than eddie van halen (laughs) (laughs) because remember eddie eddie did one michael jackson song back in the 80s arguably one of the greatest guitar solos of all time well and a lot of people don't understand that the the main riff was done by steve lukather and um the the solo is the only thing that eddie van halen actually did um, on the Michael Jackson song, but no, yeah, I just think he's he's such an iconic guy, and he's a guy that doesn't have his own signature as far as like signature shape, like Dimebag had, or even you could argue like Tom Morello has kind of like a signature guitar shape. Um, Kirk Hammett has like a signature guitar shape. James Hatfield where slash is playing a, a he's playing a conic guitar but like when you think les paul you think jimmy page you think slash you know what i mean um so and i think that's tough to do uh, so, yeah. slash had again he had the signature look it's much like Co- kurt cobain where it was the total package right like you you knew had to you, be sexual you, you still know what to anticipate what what Slash will look like when he comes out on stage. You have a general understanding of what his outfit will be. And I love the the, the music videos, especially the 90s ones. I mean, remember the uh, he's driving the car. Slash is driving the car, and he's got the woman riding shotgun who's smacking him and hitting him and yelling at him. And then he just, the car goes off the edge of the earth and then explodes down in the ravine. And then afterwards, you don't see the woman that was hitting Slash. No, you see Slash standing there, no shirt on, big 
black top hat and he's just wailing on that guitar. And after he's done with that guitar solo, guess what? He tosses that guitar right down into the ravine with that woman in that car and he moves on with his life. <laughs> he should have called 911. That's kind of a dick move, actually. <laughs> it, w- it was a waste. It would have been a waste of the first responders' time. He knew already there was no saving. Well, again, Slash wasn't like a big influence on me, but but I think his solos are some of the most iconic solos. You could be hanging out with your buddies, drinking some beers, Guns N' Roses solo uh, song comes on, the solo section comes on, and almost everybody in that room could sing the solo. Yep. Um, and November, November rain, baby. And Sweet if Child O Mine is now a Capital One commercial. Well, and if you tried to sing Tom Morello's solo, uh, people would just tell to, tell you to shut up. Yeah, you, 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 you would throw you throw your voice out like. <laughs> this is where I struggle with Slash because growing up as a Bengals fan, like Welcome to the Jungle, obviously I can. Oh, yeah. right. All you hear every time in the stadium, and here's where Big Nick's head explodes and he melts into a puddle where he smacks the shit out of me. Outside of that. I didn't know. Hey, it's all right. We're okay. We, I, we're free to have. Be, yes. I, I hey, Big we, Nick. We're, we're free to have our own taste. We're free to have our own taste. Absolutely. I mean, Cold November Rain. To say it like that. Like, Cold November Rain was like nails on a chalkboard for me. I'm just going to be It was like Cold November Rain. It was like Cold November Rain. Like, that song, Come On, I would, like, start cringing. But at the same time, I mean, you know. It doesn't have anything to do with how well the guys can play and how how iconic the riffs are. I mean, you know, it's just like Metallica. There's, you know, I like some of Metallica and there's other Metallica. I'm like, nah, take it or leave it. Well, Mark, did, did do you have a, a brother? No, I got a sister. See, I, I wonder, and, and Brian, jump in on this. We'll do. Your siblings have their favorites. Yeah, yeah, and and their favorites that you like growing up, Guns and Roses was the Colonel's favorite, one of the, one of his favorites, of course. and it, they were such one of his favorites that it was almost like annoying. Yeah, well, it was almost <laughs> like, well, I can't like them. I was gonna say you were indoctrinated. Did he like hold you down and put a speaker next to your ear and just constantly like? I wanted to be alone when Guns and Roses was on. <laughs> no, Captain, I know exactly what you're saying. With a candle, at, at some point it's like because uh, Big Nick was listening so much. You're like, dude, I can't take any more of it. So it, <laughs> no. it, could, it could even it could turn you off. Even though they're, I mean, it's, to me it was actually like Metallica in the '90s. They played it so much. I was like, I can't take any more of it. Not that they were bad. It was just like, ugh, it was too much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, ACDC growing up in Columbus, Ohio, it's like every other song yeah. on the Blitz was an ACDC song. Yeah. They're like, we're going to play ACDC exactly. 45 times in the yeah. next three hours. So, yeah, that, they were one of those bands where it's, I, I never felt like I could identify with them because because the Colonel was identifying with them. Makes complete sense to me, buddy. Absolutely. All right. Totally makes Colonel sense. number one. Yep. Let's pull it on here. Sure. Right, Colonel number one. Here we go. In the mustard. early in the study, the lead pipe. <laughs> in the early to the mid 60s, one of my favorite bands of all time was formed by a bunch of college students Sorry. in London. The band goes through a few different names. One was the Megadeths, which is weird and pretty cool all at the same time that two of my favorite bands of all time once had a very similar name, even though decades apart. 
1968, Sid Barrett leaves the band because he lost his damn mind. And don't laugh because that's the truth of it. He went completely insane. Shaved his head. This is after having a bunch of success with the Piper at the Gates of Dawn album. Then after the 1983 album, which was titled The Final Cut, Roger Waters gets weird and leaves the band. Then the lead guitarist and backup vocalist takes over and leads them from then on. And as it would turn out, David Gilmore, who is my number one, and Nick Mason, who plays piano and uh, keyboards for Pink Floyd, were actually the biggest parts of the band anyway. So we we didn't, you know, we they wrote the album Wish You Were Here. Didn't miss the other guys that much uh, because David Gilmore and Nick Mason uh, brought it all the time and still bring it to this day. In 1994, the division bell comes out followed by the pulse album, which was a live album with 25 tracks on it. Uh, in 1995, uh, the guitar on these two albums alone. I mean, the, it's just amazing. David Gilmore is a very underrated. I believe always has been a very underrated guitar player. Uh, it, if you listen to the division bell, and if you listen, the, the crazy thing is the live version of that, which a lot of the Division Bell songs are on the Pulse album as well. If you listen to the Pulse album, the live version is even better than the great tracks on the Division Bell. But what's so cool is that by the time that, you know, he sang for the band and he helped create all the songs forever. And because he was the backup singer and because he did lead vocals on a handful of their songs leading up to Roger Walters departure from the band, he now is taking it over. And if you listen to their albums from the 90s, it's a slow, methodical version of Stevie Ray Vaughan with a bunch of trippy ass, cool, psychedelic music behind it. It is David Gilmore singing singing a one line of vocals and then just hitting the guitar hard hitting the guitar hard and then he goes back with another line of vocals then he hits it hard again it's very similar to what stevie ray Vaughan was doing in the late 80s and in fact well i shouldn't say in fact because it's no duh in the 60s all of those bands that were coming out were they their roots were in in the blues and and so uh well initially they were called what the pink floyd blues explosion so, yeah, there's some debate about that. Like the Megadeths was one of their early band names. Is so, and, and the T-Set, they had a bunch of weird names for a while before they became some version of what, of what Pink Floyd is now, uh, meaning the name. Like I believe they were called the Pink Floyd Sound, the Pink Floyd Blues Band, the Pink Floyd. Uh, so they had a few different versions of that name until they just became Pink Floyd. But um, David Gilmore... One of my favorite guitar players of all time. I I can listen to those two albums any day of the week. If if I'm sitting down, glass of wine, glass of beer, what have you, that's that's my guitar album that I go to uh, any decade is Division Bell and Pulse. Good choices. I, I honestly, I think that's a great choice. I, I love Pink Floyd and David Gilmore's 
amazing guitar yeah, player. Yeah, my, my only problem with that, though, is when you go, he's like Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah, like if, if Stevie Ray Vaughan was a turtle, th- those are the slowest guitar solos. <laughs> no, you're right. Stevie Ray Vaughan had, Ray Vaughan had swing to him, right? And by that point, Pink Floyd speed. never had... Well, Pink Floyd never had speed or swing to him, but... But it, it it the the guitar on those two albums are just so powerful, and but that is his delivery on those. Two yeah, albums. but it's easy to play those. Uh, it's easy to play those things correctly when they're so slow. <laughs> it's like the slowest. <laughs> oh no, I agree. I agree one hundred percent. David Gilmore is more of a like he's kind of like a painter that's drawing the soundscape, right? I mean, because that's one thing that Pink Floyd did better than a lot of bands was they. They kind of put you in the center of their world. You know what I mean? They're able to kind of like encapsulate the listener. And there's some guitar players, yeah, they can like speed you to death, but they're also just like needling at your face versus like David Gilmore's like, step into my office. Yeah, but like David Gilmore. My couch. David Gilmore's guitar playing is like your brain on air dusters. Like it just slows down. That that's pretty accurate, actually, Captain. <laughs> it's it's one hundred percent accurate. But at the same time, too, it's the they didn't need to be vocal driven at that point. Maybe maybe they earned it uh, through decades of of hits and success. But also at the same time, it was clear. It's like okay, this is this is a band that is now being led by the guy that was writing. Mo- you know, the two guys that were writing all the music to begin with, but now it, it's we've we're settling into a decade, uh, seven years removed going into the 90s from Roger Walters. And now it's a band that's going to be led by the front man who is a legitimate and fucking awesome lead guitar player. And the songs morphed into that and you can hear it and it's it's music driven and it's not it's not vocal heavy. It's it's sit back and enjoy the ride. It is a slow ride, Captain's right. <laughs> slow ride. Uh, slow. It, it's not a roller coaster. It's a uh, it's, ride. It's it's like you know the uh, the the scooter that you get on and go through the grocery store aisles uh, with. But <laughs> but yeah, I <laughs> for me, uh, it, it it's my favorite. It still, it doesn't matter the decade. That's my favorite guitar albums. Uh, those two right there, Division Bell and Paul. Well, and Quality pick, buddy. Quality in, pick. In 19, I think it was 1997, we uh, took a road trip down to Cincinnati and we we're hanging out with one um, B. Smith. And uh, we were partying because we were heading to spring break. But for whatever reason, we decided that we'd stop an hour and a half into our. 14 hour trip or whatever it was, uh, would stop in Cincinnati and we decided to party that night and we were at some weird dude's house that I never met. I don't think any of us in our group met and we're sitting on his couch watching uh, a Pink Floyd live, uh, DVD. And we decided in the middle of the night, now is the time. Probably a VHS, but (laughs) (laughs) now is the time to, to leave. To leave. And I think we left at like three in the morning and just started driving. And, and uh, <laughs> that's my biggest Pink Floyd memory. I still remember the, uh, you guys remember the, uh, the trick with, um, Wizard of Oz. 
Wizard of Oz, thank you. Yeah. Where you line it up, I still remember it was with the third roar. Started with the third roar and it lines up. Dark Side of the Moon, we're kind of outside the 90s at this point, but uh, hey, it worked. And it was very trippy. So, all right. Well, that brings us to the very end here, gentlemen. And um, Mr. B, I... You obviously cheated off of my paper and then shifted <laughs> no, them around. No. You shifted them around so that it wouldn't look like you copied off my paper because at number one, I've got one dime bag. Yes. No. <laughs> number one. Wait, wait, hold on. Is, is, is your guys' order in reverse? Pretty much. That's in reverse. Almost, yep. Oh, yep. man. What? I mean, is going- you wouldn't tell we've been playing in bands together for 10 plus years, you know. Right. But um, closer to no, 20, buddy. I was going to say, it's got to be a lot more say, than well, 10. Yeah, years. we're getting old. Uh, dude, Don Beck Darrell was a beast, man. And, like, I, I, honestly, if, if you, like, if you pound for pound said, we're going to have, like, a showdown, a guitar player showdown, it's going to be like a rap battle, except it's going to be two guitar players doing solos. I'd be like, I'm putting all my money on that dude. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I wanted to bring up when um, when Dimebag Daryl was brought up before that I don't think they get enough credit for is they had that like Texas shuffle. Yeah, it was so, like a like, Texas swing to it a little bit. So like their riffs weren't like where like a lot of Metallica or Megadeth riffs are so straight and so white that Pantera had this like funk to their to their grooves yeah it's like that southern rock it kind of it's kind of swung on the beat a little bit a little bit more it's oh, a zz top and go kind of feel to it but yeah. like i think that's what made it sound so aggressive you know and hell because he's from texas i mean i love that these guys incorporate their own feel and where they're from in in turning into like this metal kind of groove Pat, captain you said it perfectly it's like it definitely had that texas kind of sway to it i don't know if you even want to call it but if you really listen back to a lot of the stuff you're like man i i hear some texas in this stuff these guys are it, don't fuck with texas well and it was perfect <laughs> i mean like you know obviously cowboys from hell but it's um but it's like some of those riffs when they'd start you just go oh my is the, here we go this is great yes um, and to this day when they when they come they come on you still get that same feeling um so to that point, Captain, I'll, I'll share a quick story. So I was playing, I'll set off the nerd alert here real quick. So I recently picked up the, uh, I got a PS5 and I picked nerd. up virtual reality too, right? They just came out with a new headset. I've never done anything virtual reality my entire life, right, ever. But I do have a driving wheel because I like, I like racing games. I love racing and I love the feel of like you're in the old school arcade where you're fighting the steering wheel and it's got the force feedback and all that stuff. So anyway, I'm, I'm I'm playing that, and there's like a, a mission or whatever I'm struggling with, and I swear to God, I put on uh, Spotify. You can put on in the background, and Cowboys from Hell comes on, and like immediately I got laser focused and <laughs> Cowboys destroyed from that. Hell it didn't stand a chance. So just like you said, Captain, the songs come on, they inspire you. They're inspiring, beautiful. Well, so on his Dimoflage guitar. Because yeah. when he came out with his Dean lineup, those were some of the coolest, like, icon guitars. You, you know, like, this, this the Slash um, Les Paul was okay with that little cartoon snake, but uh, but the Dimoflage 
I always thought was one of the coolest looking guitars. Agreed. It's pretty cool. He had some pretty slick ones. That's for sure. So, well, boys, I had fun. I, I will open it up begrudgingly to uh, honorable mentions here because I feel like we could probably go on for another hour just with honorable mentions, but maybe one or two each. I'll just do um, one. I'll do one. Big, yeah, later, I'll do later. one. And, and the only reason why is because, so the only reason why I didn't make my list is because I don't really listen to his stuff as much. But when I do, I'm like, holy shit, is a one Mr. John Petrucci. Yes. And does that guy make a mean guitar? Because Marcus has one of them, and that's I own a couple. The, most, the most beautiful guitar I've ever seen in my life. But that dude just has some, he has skill and licks for days. Yeah, but, he, I just, but here's the thing, though, is when Dimebag Daryl plays guitar, you're like, that guy's a rock star. And when you see fair. Dream, when you see Dream Theater, you're like, that guy's a nerd. <laughs> There's well, a I don't know. He, he's been, he he's been lifting weights. Yeah, he could probably bench press all three of us or all four of us. But, <laughs> but I agree. It's like I just I didn't listen to Dream Theater a lot because I, I, I didn't really like the vocals, yeah. but I love the music behind it. And he just has guitar skills for days. I mean, he's God. He's arguably probably maybe one of the best guitar players still rocking today. Yeah, so for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, just, I wasn't a huge Dream Theater fan either. I mean, I, ironically, I was drawn to the look and feel of his guitars. But then when you actually listen to him play, the dude can yeah. shred. So he, he, he was my close number four just based off his guitar playing alone. It's just was it's it's immaculate. I like it. Captain. Yeah. yeah when, I, when I saw Dream Theater for the first time, I was like, oh, yeah, they they look how they sound. Like nerds. <laughs> like nerds. Better watch out, John Petrucci's gonna show up at your house. Yeah, that guy's that guy's into bodybuilding. He might he he's, might he's a little he built. your skull. He's a big dude. <laughs> this well, and and see, this was such a tough list because like what, what we we're saying before we started recording, it's like, is it who influenced you? Is it who you who you think influenced the the rock world or who influenced um the guitar in general, um, you and, want it to be. And so what I did was I just tried to go, who, who were the students asking me to learn their riffs? Um, and those, the three I gave, I think honorable mentions, you could, as far as like songs, people wanted to learn like green day. That was my joke for a long time. Cause people would be like, Hey, I heard you teach guitar. And I'd say, well, I teach Metallica, Nirvana and green day. Um, but a big one for me, but he's not an electric guitar player, was Dave Matthews. Because when oh, he... Amazing guitar player. Talented dude. When he came out, he was he just plays guitar so differently than anybody else ever has and probably ever will because he just has this thing. And uh, that was the first guy that got me... Because you don't know, be in a bass player, and then then I'd hear his riffs and I'd go, "Oh, I wonder if I could play that." So he he was a big influence on on me wanting to learn guitar. Yep, very talented dude. And Nick, how about you? Mark, when you started the show, you said that we would all have about three hundred of these honorable mentions. And you're <laughs> that was me. Close. That was me. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. B, you were pretty close there. And and what's great is every one of your guys's picks would be honorable mentions for me. Every one of your guys's picks would be ones that I thought and f- very hard. It's a struggle to come up with, to narrow it down to three. And those were, were guys that I had to leave off of my list. So I hate myself. Uh, I woke up hating myself and I'll go to bed hating myself, but uh, two quick ones. 
uh, I'll go with uh, Satriani, and I'll go with um, I'll go with Adam Jones from Tool. Um, there you oh, go. Oh yes, Some good ones there. Well, and I'm yeah. going to go to bed hating you too. But <laughs> you didn't need an extra reason. But I but I did look up like uh, it was like a YouTube top ten guitar players of the '90s, and I was going to share the the list, uh, which we all had somebody on that list. But once they got to number one, I was like, "Well, no, this their number one pick was so bad." Ooh, we need to know who it is. Yeah, now we need to know. And and I love this guitar player. Uh, that he plays a lot with one of my favorite bands of all time. But I don't know what he did in the '90s. Buckethead. Oh yeah, Buckethead. Yeah. They had all these guys like Tom Morello and Jerry Cantrell and uh, you know. Kirk Hammond and all these people, and then number one, was number one, Buckethead, and I went, no, this this list is shit. <laughs> he was well, one of those guys that, uh, I mean, I guess yeah, talented guy. I didn't listen to him that much, so I don't have a, like a, a deep knowledge of his stuff. But yeah, that's an odd number one choice. I don't know about that. Well, and if you want to hear it, super deep track, so Big Nick, you said Adam Jones from Tool, right? Uh, so he went to high school with Tom Morello. Mm. Literally, uh, Tom Morello's mom was a teacher at the school. They were that was his homeroom teacher. Think about the small world of that. Oh yeah, or Kirk Hammett went to high school with Les Claypool. Yeah, crazy, just craziness to think of that. Yeah, I didn't know either. No, we went to the wrong damn high schools. We should have right. <laughs> high schools where they're pumping out rock stars. We went yeah, to high school. I went to high school with the captain. Well, the, uh, yeah. that, uh, Let me see how that turned out. Another <laughs> phone booth from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and head back to those high schools. Yeah, no, the problem, uh, Mr. B, is that uh, we had too many icons that went to the same school. So it's it's like when they, you know, they form a super group and we're going to get uh, Slash and we're going to get Jason Newstead and we're going to, you know, get all the it's the super group and how they cancel each other out and they just make a right. shitty record. <laughs> that's that's what our high school was yep nailed it <laughs> well i'll give you what i got boys i got um james headfield so captain yours was one of mine that one was really tough to leave off the list slash even though what i said about the great guns and roses <laughs> nothing against them and again everybody's got their own flavor of tea that they like but uh, slash was up there steve Vai was another one for me that oh, has oh yeah oh yeah a, buddy a great guitar player but, yeah, the um, handle built into the guitar. If I remember, monkey was a mess. Yeah. Just, just so you can carry it. That's right, no big deal. So, well, boys, I had a blast. I don't know about you guys. All you big kids out there, I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. Tune us in next Sunday. We're here every Sunday for you. Until next time, we are the Big Kid Show.